From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. Let me make it quite clear that in the Muslim world, if you go, bioethical issues are not discussed in public conversations. Abdulaziz Sashadina is a bioethicist and chair of the Religious Studies Department at George Mason University. There aren't many Islamic scholars like him who combine modern and traditional education. And he says that's a problem. There's very little information coming from the public health authorities about the bioethical issues. There are no public debates about issues. People don't know much about, you know, general rules about who is taking the final decision in the hospital when the person is in persistent vegetative state or what happens, you know, when the person goes into coma. There are no decisions made. This lack of rigorous debate has ramifications beyond hospitals. Let's look at Egypt. This past summer, an Egyptian court tried 41 people for trafficking in human organs. According to the World Health Organization, Egypt is a global hub for the black market organ trade. Usually, the so-called donors willingly sell a kidney, part of their liver, or even an eye. Many of these donors are migrants fleeing African countries like Sudan and Somalia. They've decided this is the best way to make money. But in some cases, their organs are not sold. They're stolen. It seems an outrageous claim, but Azazi has evidence. A series of photos he took of bodies that were found in the desert. All of them have unusual scars in the abdominal area. Corneas, livers, and kidneys are the organs most commonly taken from the helpless refugees. CNN reported on a mafia-run system where refugees' organs are taken while they're still alive. One reason organ trafficking is such a big problem in Egypt is because there's no effective legal organ transplant program. Shireen Hamdi is an anthropology professor at UC Irvine. She has studied Egypt, and she says that organ donation is legal, but for some Muslims, it's considered immoral. There was a very popular sheikh um, who had his own television station under Sadat called uh, Sheikh Sharawi. From the 1970s through the 90s, Sharawi was one of the most influential Islamic preachers in the Middle East. He had millions of followers. Very sporadically on television one day, someone asked him, what do you think about kidney transplant? And he said, how could you possibly give something that doesn't belong to you? We all know that the body belongs to God. It's easy for the government to blame religious opposition for its inability to create a legal system for organ transplantation. But there are deeper issues. There's corruption, lack of oversight in public hospitals, medical negligence and malpractice. So Egyptians don't believe that an organ transplant system could be effective and fair. So with no public dialogue, there's no push for a better policy. Today, patients who need an organ have to fend for themselves. And so if you have kidney failure in Egypt, you're basically responsible for procuring your own kidney. There's no wait list. Also, many Egyptian doctors are so underpaid, they're willing to perform illegal transplants with organs bought on the black market. And there are so many people who are willing to part with their kidneys for fast cash. A kidney will go for $8,000, says Hamdi. But the Egyptian government has done little to address the crisis. That's just one facet of a larger problem with bioethics in Islam, says ethicist Abdulaziz Sashadina. If you go to Dubai, to Medina or Mecca, there are hospitals as modern as the hospitals you find in New York. Medical technology is universal. And yet medical issues are treated differently. 
because people are not publicly educated. Medicine is still very paternalistic. It's authoritatively administered. There is no accountability. So we are now realizing in the Muslim world that there's a new field that must be encouraged, and new personnel must be trained, and that's bioethicists, who can then solve the problems of different clinical situations with which we are faced. Today on America Abroad, we'll hear from bioethicists and patients who are applying centuries-old scripture to answer questions about modern medicine. We'll learn why some transgender Muslims are traveling to Bangkok for gender reassignment surgery, and why a Muslim chaplain advised a patient to end his own life support. Plus, how Muslim clerics work with doctors to decide cases involving in vitro fertilization, stem cell therapy, and abortion. But first, what exactly is bioethics? Arthur Kaplan is the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine. He's been studying bioethics for 35 years. I'm not the creator of the field, but I'm probably best known as a person who brought the field out into the public, out into the policy world, out by the bedside in terms of interacting with patients, and oftentimes talking to the media. Kaplan says bioethics did not begin in academia. The field itself grew initially out of interest on the part of theological and religious leaders. They were the founders of the field. There were many, many mm, people from the Christian and Jewish traditions who said medicine, science are posing tough questions, interesting challenges for us. They could be, is it right to take organs from the dead and transplant them? When do we shut off machines? They didn't have them before the uh, 1970s in intensive care. Is it right to say someone has died, even if the machines apparently are keeping some functions alive? But as the field of bioethics began to grow, it became more secular. To have that public dialogue, it turned out philosophy did a better job because it could frame the issues in ways that didn't make you commit to a holy book or a particular tradition or what a particular religious leader said. So right after the theologians came people like me, the philosophers, and we recast the issues into secular terms, and that became much easier to use out in the public arena. In the early days, religion was a driving force to bioethics, no doubt about it. It's not a driving force in quite the same way, but it's returned and returned with a great deal of enthusiasm on the part of religious traditions to get into bioethics now that certain areas have been laid out as important, end-of-life care, allocation of scarce resources, research ethics. Those were laid out, if you will, by the secular tradition, but religion now wants to weigh in. So we've come almost full circle. Islamic law has been thinking about ethical challenges for a long time. Dr. Asim Padella is a Muslim bioethicist at the University of Chicago. He's a practicing physician and he's trained in Islamic theology. Muslims have been thinking about the sacred law as it relates to bioethical matters, so to speak, since uh, the classical times. We have been thinking about the virtue of a physician, about the agent for a long time. And we have been thinking about the outcomes of medicine for a long time. Islamic scholars in particular have looked at bioethical issues, but they haven't necessarily joined into what we would call the bioethics community. There have been plenty of fatwas and rulings and opinions issued on all manner of things 
Remember, Islam is not uniform, so there are uh, Shiite ideas, there are Sunni ideas. Even within the Sunni tradition, there are variations on how people interpret answers to different questions. Islam doesn't have a centralized body to rule on religious law. Rather, there are multiple religious leaders across the globe, and their opinions on Islamic law vary widely. That can make religious rulings on bioethical questions tricky. But in recent years, Muslim religious leaders have gradually begun to talk about modern bioethical issues, says Abdulaziz Sashadina of George Mason University. Now you find in Muslim world the bioethics committee. This is a new phenomenon. We need those because medical treatment has advanced so much that patients have no right. They don't know what's happening to them. Families don't know what they are doing, and they need to be educated. So there's kind of a new awakening, a new awareness about what the medical field is doing. About 15 years ago, the most highly regarded Islamic religious leaders from the Middle East held a meeting to study a bioethical question and issued a collective ruling. The question had stirred debate around the world. Should human embryonic stem cells be used for medical research? Are these frozen embryos human life and therefore something precious to be protected? While it was being debated in the West among Christian-majority nations, Muslim leaders knew they needed something that worked for them. We cannot copy and paste the ethical issues related to the church into a Muslim society. Dr. Abdallah Awidi runs the Cell Center at the University of Jordan. It's the largest stem cell research center in the Middle East. He spoke to us via Skype. These days, advances in medicine have eliminated the need to use embryos for the harvesting of stem cells. But back then, the issue was difficult. The Muslim society has a different reference, which is what the scholars are saying. And we rely heavily on the Mecca meeting years ago, so the Mecca meeting was in this particular case where there is an excess fertilized eggs and they were destined to be thrown away, you're allowed to use them for the purpose of generating a therapeutic product with clear need. The Mecca meeting brought together religious leaders from 57 Muslim-majority countries. And out of that meeting came a fatwa, an authoritative ruling on a point of Islamic law. In many Muslim-majority countries, fatwas are issued by someone called the mufti. A mufti in a Muslim country is the ultimate religious authority, which would say that from the Muslim religion standpoint, this is allowed or not allowed. The mufti will issue it in accordance with the council of the fatwa, who are 23 individuals. So they come up with a decision, and then the mufti is the one who releases this decision. And so this is uh, is not something which comes out of the blue. It's well studied, carefully considered. Uh, Many meetings may happen, as in our case, until we came up with a balanced and, and right decision. Still, a fatwa from the Jordanian mufti may differ from the Iraqi mufti or the Saudi mufti. Unlike in Catholicism, there is no singular head of Islam, no one person decreeing which medical practices are acceptable or not. The result, different laws in different places, says Shireen Hamdi of UC Irvine. There is no Islam that speaks in a particular voice. There are only Muslims who do their best to interpret the word of God. And traditionally, people give more authority to Islamic scholars who've studied the Quran and the texts and have developed uh, mechanisms and systems for deriving law from those texts. 
But some people don't. I mean, some people reject this idea that scholars who are ensconced in certain schools of legal thought should have more authority than a regular person reading the Quran. So there is no what does Islam say. There's a lot of debate. But even when the state sanctions a certain medical procedure, often Muslim individuals will seek religious guidance for their particular case. In Cairo, we found a family who faced a mortal dilemma. 22-year-old Ahmed had kidney failure and he needed a transplant. His mother didn't want to share her name for privacy concerns, so we'll call her Rada. She wanted to donate one of her kidneys, but Ahmed was against it. He didn't want to risk his mother's health. I didn't want my mother to be the one donating it, but she insisted, you know, mother, the mother thing to do. And I, I tried talking my father into just taking someone else's buying, just like normal people does, but my mother, she ain't normal. Rada turned to her faith for answers. As we heard earlier, some religious leaders, like Sheikh Shirawi, are against organ donation. Our bodies, they say, belong not to us, but to God. That is not the conclusion Rada came to. She decided to donate one of her kidneys to her son. From the religious point of view, uh, we have a verse in Quran that whoever give life to a single person as if he's donating for all the humanity. So this encouraged me because I'm doing double purpose, of course, rescuing my son. And this is enough because this is very, yes. yes. So it's a win-win situation, yes. So when it came to her son's health, Rada trusted her own religious education. She did not seek outside guidance. I was praying a lot, reading my Quran verses a lot. I wanted to be as cool and calm as possible. So that's what helped a lot. For her, donating a kidney was the best decision for her family as a whole. And in the Muslim tradition, family and community may be considered to be more important than the individual, says Muslim chaplain Abdulaziz Sashadina. Collectively looking at the, all the factors that are going to impact upon the whole family rather than just one individual. And, and that's the way the decision is made rather than simply saying this individual is an autonomous individual who, you know, who needs to be kept alive anyways. We should do that. No, all other factors must be seen together. Coming up, how Islam's holistic approach led to Sasha Dina's most difficult decision involving a person on life support. If you want to join the conversation, you can find us on Facebook or tweet us at America underscore abroad. You're listening to Bioethics in Islam on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. Abdulaziz Sashadina's office at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, is packed with books, so many that he has to use shelf space in an adjacent hallway. The books that fill his walls contain centuries' worth of scholarly, medical, and religious debate from the Islamic canon. Over the years, he's built a reputation not only as a highly regarded professor of Islamic studies, but also as a global authority on Islamic bioethics, which is why he is constantly getting requests for help from all over the world on medical dilemmas. One of his most difficult cases involved a man in Toronto who suffered from multiple sclerosis. The patient was becoming completely dependent upon the wife and the children. He could not move. Nothing could be done. But he was conscious. His mind was sharp. We would keep on asking him, is it okay for us to turn off your ventilator? And he would say, no. 
No, I want to remain alive. I want to see my wife. I want to see my children. Although it was very, very difficult for the wife and the children to go on for almost 15 years. Finally, I really, what I pursued was the religious language. Because medically, he was kept alive. And medically, and even Islamic law says, as long as the person can speak for himself, you have no right to make a decision on his behalf. So here we were stuck. Neither I could help, nor the family could say, okay, we are all surrogate decision makers, we'll make the decision on behalf of the patient. The patient was himself conscious. He was able to do that. Finally, I was able to talk him the language of theology. What does God want from us? Does God want you to have a quality of life? Are you able to enjoy your life? Is the family really enjoying what they are seeing, your suffering every day and night? And finally, finally, he said, okay, the time has come to allow you to switch off the machine. So that's how the decision was made. It was very difficult. And the important thing is the family could not agree. The wife could not say, yes, please turn off the machine. No, because she felt responsible. She would tell me, that means I'm killing my husband, and I can't do that. The children also the same way. So I had to come in in order to talk the language that was the language of the will of God. It's not easy to accept it, by the way. We moderns, we think we can do anything, we can control anything and everything. And yet there comes a time when we can't do it, when we have to say, let God's will be done. And that's what I think I was able to do in that case of Toronto. And so the family turned off the respirator. The doctor came in, actually. They were not willing to touch the machine. Somehow they felt that somebody professional has to do it. We will not do that. They felt a guilt somehow, you know, that we were getting rid of him. And they didn't want to feel it that way. They didn't want to think like that, you know. But in fact, it was their decision. It was a collective decision. I was involved. Medical team was, because even the doctors were saying, there's no hope. We are simply allowing him, you know, to be taken care of. And he didn't want to be in the hospital. Didn't want to be in palliative care, nothing. You know, he wanted to be at home. And it was a lot of burden on the entire family. The entire family was suffering with him. And so finally, when the decision was made, I felt it was not one person's decision. It was a collective decision made, including the patient himself. How do you balance the consideration of modern technology and the ability to preserve life and perhaps to give hope in certain circumstances with hundreds-year-old Islamic law? There are so many things that we use today, Immuno, immunosuppressive, you know, treatments are prolonging life in the cancer patients. There's so much happening today. And all of it, by the way, is supported by Islamic law that, yes, your duty is to prolong life as long as there is a promise of cure or as long as there's a promise of becoming better. The principle that is very much operative in the bioethical decision-making in Islamic law is the principle that is known in Arabic is la darar wa la dirar, no harm and no harassment. So any decision that you make should not be causing harm to the person who is involved, to the family who are related to the person. So whenever I'm asked to make give an opinion, I use that principle. 
And I asked the doctor, I asked the family, what kind of bills are they paying? What kind of financial situation are they in? How is it helping them? How is it making their life even more difficult? When I see all of it together, then I draw my chart. I said, this is harmful, this is beneficial. The harm here is about 49%. The benefit is about 51%. No, the benefit here is about 55%. And the you know, harm is 45%. So I do my mathematical calculations and finally give my opinion saying that, you know, there's more harm being done. And you would rather consider something different than this one. So this is how we talk to the, to the doctor. That's Abdulaziz Sashadina. In addition to being a chaplain, he chairs the Religious Studies Department at George Mason University. Of course, decisions at the beginning of life can be just as difficult. Take abortion. Most Islamic legal scholars agree that abortion is allowed under certain circumstances, but the details can vary greatly. Here's UC Irvine anthropologist Shireen Hamdi. There is no Islam that speaks in a particular voice. There are only Muslims who do their best to interpret the word of God. And so in terms of the abortion debate, many, many people will allude to a hadith, which is a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, that talks about when the angel blows the soul into the human. There are allusions to this depending on the interpretation of the hadith, of either that happening at 40 days or at 120 days. But state law in Muslim-majority countries is often more restrictive than religious practice. Eighteen Muslim-majority countries have banned abortion completely, except to save the life of the mother. In Egypt, abortion is highly restricted, but changing the laws runs up against political realities. These are concessions that the government has made to the oppositional groups who mobilize in the name of some kind of Islamic identity that is extremely patriarchal and negative to women. And that, you know, the government will try to win points in terms of having a moral authority by trying to be even more patriarchal than that. On a social level, this is seen as something that's, you know, very unfortunate that women resort to, but it has not ever taken on the tone, the debate that it has in this country where women are vilified for potentially taking a life. It's seen more like the woman is in a very terrible situation and how horrible for her that she would have to do such a thing. You know, so the woman is seen much more as like a victim of circumstances than as an agent of evil. Mm. So is it illegal under Egyptian law? So it's illegal, yeah, from the Napoleonic Code. It's still illegal, which doesn't mean that it's not practiced at any point. At any point. Except for the life of the mother. And so, as you say, it is practiced. How is it practiced? You know, most doctors have to have private clinics just to be able to make ends meet because their government salaries don't pay them enough to live on. And so in private clinics, there are doctors who will refuse ethically and they'll say, no, I'm sorry, you made a mistake, but that's not my mistake. And there are doctors who will take pity on the woman's position and they will um, perform the abortion. New technologies like genetic testing have also raised concerns about when abortion is ethical, says Imam Yahya Hendi. He's the Muslim chaplain of Georgetown University. A few years ago, he was asked to adjudicate a case where a fetus had a severe abnormality. So the decision was, should we terminate the pregnancy or keep the pregnancy and have the family live with the pain that is completely 
confirmed by medical inputs. It took me almost a week to decide because to end life is not an easy issue, but also to say, yes, you have to continue with the pregnancy and live with the pain that it will uh, bring about to the family. I did not know what to do. Imam Hendi consulted with doctors, religious figures, and bioethicists from across the country. I even called people in other countries to see what kind of answer they would give. I ended up with tears in my eyes saying, go ahead and terminate the pregnancy. The way I thought of it is Islam does acknowledge that life would naturally have pain in it, but do we buy pain? Do we acquire pain? Do we allow pain to continue knowing that it, in this case, if I terminate the pregnancy, may God forgive us, but uh, at the end of the day, I am helping the mother and the father live a normal life. Quality of life by itself is a value in Islam that Islam wants us to acquire, to respect, and to honor. The quality of life would not exist here, and since we have the ability to terminate the life before it happens completely, it would be okay. Imam Hendi says he felt empowered to make this decision by reading the Quran. The Quran offers few specifics, just broad themes about the quality of life. And so he felt comfortable applying his own interpretation. The Quran is meant to serve our needs throughout ages. And in most cases, it does not give us specifics. It allows us the freedom to choose, the freedom to navigate, the freedom to downplay or upplay another perspective. And therefore, I believe the Quran, though it is a text that was revealed unto Prophet Muhammad 1400 years ago, it continues to be relevant because it continues to address these new issues and new questions. The fact that the Quran talks about these big pictures makes it accessible and usable. The University of Chicago's Dr. Asim Padella says this flexibility is critical because what might be considered painful for one family may not be for another. Islamic legal scholars talk about the ability to abort a fetus prior to installment. It's reprehensible, but it's not prohibited. But then there's people say that you need to have some valid reasons for doing that, fetal abnormalities. Uh, Some scholars even go as far as saying that potentially for Down syndrome, you could abort a fetus. The reason being that you have to assess the capability of the family psychologically to handle a child with Down syndrome. Now, there are many Muslims right around the world who have children with Down syndrome. And qualitative and ethnographic research bears out that individuals with Down syndrome generally live happy lives. They have shorter life expectancies, but uh, they live happy lives and they are a source of happiness for parents. So some parents might not be the case, but others are perfectly content and happy with the children that God has given them. So it's a case-by-case adjudication. Another challenge many couples in Muslim-majority countries face is the stigma associated with infertility. According to Sharia law, infertility is grounds for divorce. So, yes, thousands, of millions of Muslim couples are entering into this realm of assisted reproduction. Marsha Inhorn is a medical anthropologist at Yale University. She studies infertility and reproductive technologies across the Middle East. In general, in the Middle East, it's a very child-centric, child-loving region of the world. People, when they marry, want to have children. So when it doesn't happen within the span of the first few years of marriage, the family becomes concerned, and there is a sort of question, you know, what's the problem, what's going on with them? 
Family pressure drives some men to remarry, but others refuse to abandon their wives and instead push back against the stigma. Many men are extremely compassionate when their wives face infertility, and similarly, women too are often compassionate when their husbands face often severe male infertility problems. Another source of comfort for infertile Muslims is religion. Islam mentions the fact that some people have only girls, some people have only boys, and some people have no children at all. And actually that religious explanation gives a lot of solace to people who are wondering why they're the ones having trouble conceiving. If faith alone isn't consolation, most Islamic jurists say you can take action to try to cure your infertility. There's a sort of strong belief that God creates problems but also creates solutions and that people, when they're facing a medical condition, should do something about it. The most common fertility treatment is IVF, in vitro fertilization. So in vitro fertilization, which involves taking eggs or oocytes from a woman and taking sperm from a man, a husband and wife, and then combining them in an IVF laboratory to create embryos, that was accepted the first fatwa or the first sort of religious uh, decree uh, on the acceptability of IVF came as early as 1980, which was only two years after Louise Brown, the first IVF baby in the world, was born in England. Both Sunnis and Shiites permit IVF, but for Sunnis, the majority of Muslims, there are some restrictions. The egg and the sperm must come from a husband and his wife. So that means you cannot use egg donor, sperm donor, embryo donor, or gestational surrogacy. Another man's sperm entering into the marriage or another woman's eggs entering into the marriage is sort of seen as being tantamount to illicit sexual relations. And people kind of view it as a sort of technological adultery, if you will. Then there is the issue of paternity and legitimacy. If you're introducing a donor, especially a sperm donor, you literally are confusing or mixing the genealogy of that child. And um, it's considered to be uh, dishonest, and it would be you know, stressful for the child if the child found out. And so it's just believed that you need to keep biological paternity and maternity very clear. Shiite Muslims have a different stance on third-party donors. Clerics and ayatollahs in Iran and Lebanon have issued fatwas permitting egg, sperm, and embryo donation, also surrogacy. Many of them decided that egg donation in particular would be okay um, because it doesn't confuse biological paternity. You're still using the husband's sperm. It doesn't confuse biological maternity either. In Islam, there's something called milk kinship. Where by the virtue of breastfeeding that baby, it becomes in effect her own child. So egg donation is really taken off in Iran and also in Lebanon, um, where there's a large Shia population. To my knowledge, those are the only two Middle Eastern Muslim countries where these practices occur. That's why Iran and Lebanon attract medical tourists, Sunni couples who need egg and sperm donations to get pregnant. In the course of her research, Marsha Inhorn has interviewed hundreds of infertile couples across the Middle East. But there's one that stands out for her, a Syrian couple she met in Lebanon several years ago, before the Syrian civil war broke out. He was a farmer. He was a well-to-do farmer. And he was perfectly fertile. There was nothing wrong with his reproductive tract. But his wife had something called premature ovarian failure. Without knowing it, she had entered into early menopause and she had no viable eggs. She was incapable of having a child. 
And he loved her. He loved her a lot. But his family was pressuring him to divorce her and marry someone else. And he said, no, look, I, I love my wife. I'm, I'm not going to do that to her. And so they began these journeys going back and forth secretly to Beirut, to Lebanon, to try to find uh, egg donors for her. Since Syria is a majority Sunni country, IVF clinics there don't use third-party donors. And so the couple, Sunni Muslims themselves, had to travel to Lebanon for treatments. And he said, I know religiously it's not accepted completely, but it's still my sperm, so I'm still the father. And she will be pregnant. She'll experience the pregnancy. She'll feed that baby in her womb, feed it with her breast milk. And so as far as I'm concerned, that's all right. That will be our child. After several tries, they got pregnant with twins. But that meant it would be a high-risk pregnancy. She lost that pregnancy in the sixth month. They lived briefly, but then they passed away. And it was extremely devastating to them, as you can imagine. And there was some suspicion that the children weren't completely theirs because the blood type was different. And so, yeah, there was secrecy and concern. But despite their family's objections and the religious taboos, they kept trying. I met this couple in Beirut coming back yet again to try to find an egg donor. Not long after Inhorn left Beirut and the couple went back home, the Syrian civil war broke out. And sadly, I don't know the end of their story. I don't know if they ever did have a child. They're one of many Sunni couples who travel to a Shiite-majority country for donor eggs. And Inhorn says the practice is becoming more prevalent, even though Sunni clerics have banned it. But as new medical practices become more common and more openly discussed, they seem less controversial. And that can lead to changes in legal rulings. That's exactly what happened in the case of gender reassignment surgery. The surgery has been allowed by Shiite religious leaders since 1967, and in the last few years, as trans issues become more visible, some Sunni clerics have followed suit. Coming up, how a Sunni Muslim transitioned from male to female and found her faith. That was what Allah gave me. That's what I was born with, you know. For more on this and past episodes, you can head to our website at PRI.org. You're listening to Bioethics in Islam on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. Medical tourism is on the rise for patients from majority Muslim countries who often have a hard time finding quality, affordable care at home. And because it's affordable, Thailand is a particular hotspot, says Dr. Eric Fleischman, the international medical director for Bumangrad Hospital in Bangkok. We see uh, 1.1 million patients a year, and half of them come from outside of Thailand. And that includes over 125,000 people coming from the Middle East as well. Fleischman says most of his patients come for the five-star service. I mean, the hospital itself looks like a Ritz-Carlton, and the level of Clinical care at that price is pretty much unrivaled. And they feel right at home. So in the hospital, we provide halal food. We have two very large prayer rooms, and we do Ramadan celebrations within the hospital. Thai hospitals attract international Muslim patients for all sorts of medical procedures. While Bumangrad is known for cancer treatment, other Thai hospitals are better known for performing gender reassignment surgery. In fact, Bangkok is the world's top destination for transgender medical tourists, including many Muslims. The strictest Sunni clerics prohibit being trans. In Saudi Arabia, it's illegal and punishable by torture. But more liberal Sunni clerics permit it. 
they point to centuries-old Islamic scripture that says there are mukanathun, literally men who resemble women, who should not be killed. And in Shia-majority Iran, gender reassignment is not only permitted, it's subsidized by the government. That's because some Muslims see gender reassignment as preferable to people committing homosexual acts. Even so, most transgender Muslims are not accepted in their communities. And that was the case for Maya Jaffer. My name is Maya Jaffer. I am a post-op transsexual woman, and I originate from a very strict religious, traditional Muslim family in South India. My father was very, very strict, very devout Muslim, and he always wanted to make sure that we followed every single rule and regulation of Islam. And we had to pray five times a day, and then we had to fast in Ramadan. So my father showed us the negative aspects of Islam. You know, if you don't do this, you go to hell. If you don't do that, you go to hell. And you have to do this strictly, and you have to do it right. Otherwise, you're going to hell. Otherwise, you're going to hell. Otherwise, you're going to hell. Whereas my mother showed us the more loving, forgiving, accepting aspect of Islam. Well, I was a very effeminate kid. Growing up, I realized that I was different from the rest of the boys. I grew up with a lot of being teased, being mocked, being humiliated, being beat up, being sexually, emotionally abused by friends, by classmates, school and community and whatnot. I was just the butt of the joke. Because the belief is you will mislead men who are straight or masculine and you will make them gay and you will make them participate in all kinds of homosexual acts. I prayed. I prayed a lot and I did try a lot to not be attracted to men, to be more masculine, which never really worked out. In every dream, every fantasy of mine, I saw myself as a girl. If it was a sexual fantasy or if it was a romantic fantasy, I was always the girl. I was always the woman in that. When I was 18 years old, I fell in love with a college mate of mine who just happened to be Muslim. And he told me he loved me and I told him I loved him. And he saw the girl in me, actually. Eventually, after some time, he just kind of started feeling really guilty because at that time I was considered gay and he did not want to be seen as gay and be romantically involved with another man because of the verses in the Holy Quran. He ended it with me, which of course was beyond devastating. I tried to commit suicide and I was miserable. I came to the U.S. in 2000. My state of depression just grew and became deeper and deeper and deeper. It hit me that the reason I'm unhappy and have been unhappy my entire life is that I was not accepting who I truly am, which is a woman, which is a female. And I think I had that mentality because of how I was raised, like being feminine is wrong. So that day, that moment, I made the decision that I'm going to transition. And the moment I made that decision, it was like a huge 100-pound load was lifted off my shoulders. In the Holy Quran, there are verses against homosexuality, but in the same Holy Quran, there is absolutely nothing mentioned about transgenders. Nothing. Nil. Nada. Nothing is mentioned about transgenders. So I had my first estrogen 
shot on May 27th, 2009. And, and then I had my gender confirmation surgery on February 10th, 2011. You know, I mean, I have been through some real hardship and tough times. But the worst part of my transition was the fact that my family disowned me. That's when my real spirituality began, was when my family disowned me. I started telling myself that my God has created, my Allah has created me the way I am. I didn't choose to be like this way. My treatment was to transition, but that was what Allah gave me. That's what I was born with, you know. And so through that, slowly, 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 I, I began to believe that my God loves me no matter what. And I started developing a genuine relationship with my God, with my Allah. Today, I'm, I have never been happier in my life. When I look at myself in the mirror today, I recognize myself. Maya Jaffer is a transgender activist and actor. Today, she lives in Los Angeles, where she belongs to a community of LGBT Muslims. Gender reassignment isn't the only controversial elective surgery. Hymenoplasty, or hymen reconstruction, is a source of heated debate in Muslim societies. Surgeons rebuild the hymen to make it seem like the woman is a virgin. And that brings up a range of bioethical issues, says Dr. Asim Padella of the University of Chicago. There's hundreds of reasons why your hymen might be torn prior to sexual intercourse. Horse riding, gymnastics, but sometimes community individuals don't recognize that. So there's an educational aspect there. Then there's the issue of female virtue, says Shireen Hamdi of UC Irvine. There you get this question of, oh, women are not taking responsibility for their sexual promiscuity. But because premarital sex is so heavily stigmatized, should women who are no longer virgins in places where the existence of the hymen is seen as essential to marriage, should they be allowed to have a procedure that will make it seem like they are still virgins upon marriage for people who hold on to that idea that the hymen is important. Essential ethical question from the Western perspective is, is this duplicitous? Re-virginating, quote-unquote, someone who is not a virgin, and are we participating in that? There were state muftis who said, yes, let the woman have that happen to her. And, and men would say, what? That's crazy. That's lying to the future husband. And one of these state muftis, Sheikh Ali Goma, his response was, well, everybody's allowed to make a mistake and make amends for it and repent and start anew. And why should she you know, suffer the consequences of the mistake for the rest of her life? There are lots of consequences. Divorce, public humiliation, ostracism, family disownment, even honor killings. There's also this notion of, should we practice medicine based on social considerations? It's not just a stigma, but there is physical harm that we know in various countries that might ensue. So while hymenoplasty is medically unnecessary, it can keep a woman from becoming a victim of violence. And that, Padella says, is something doctors need to consider when deciding whether to perform the surgery. And there are other questions, like, should doctors be allowed to manipulate people's genetic makeup? The work was done with a technology known as CRISPR. Essentially, a team of scientists snipped out the gene that causes a heart disease known as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The newest Research. bioethical quandaries have to do with the very makeup of who we are, says NYU bioethicist Arthur Kaplan. 
Bioethics has a keen interest right now in the ethical issues created by new genetic knowledge, whether it's making uh, databases, collecting information from people and trying to correlate that with diseases, but soon enough with behaviors or personality types or maybe even trying to improve things. This field may have particular resonance for Muslims. It's interesting, in the Islamic nations, many of them have a fair amount of inbreeding. That is, people who are first cousins get married, people in the same village get married over long periods of time. We're familiar with that phenomenon a little bit from, say, Jewish communities that have Tay-Sachs or the Amish community that produces genetic errors that lead to either therapy or prevention-type strategies. Um, I think you're going to see that extended in a serious way into the Middle East. I think the uh, Islamic nations are going to have to wrestle with the question of how do we deal with new genetic knowledge, how much do we want to spend on gene therapy, if we're going to prevent some of the genetic diseases that we suffer from. Another area of newly charted scientific territory is brain mapping. All those pictures people see of the brain lighting up when we ask you questions or stick your head in an MRI device and try to figure out if you're subconsciously a racist. This has implications for criminal psychology, for mental health treatments, and the justice system as a whole. One is, are people more likely to do bad things, be criminal, steal, assault others, molest children because there's something wrong characteristically in their brains that we understand? If it is then you don't take people out necessarily in the public square and whip them or stone them. You may have to send them to therapy because there's something biologically wrong in their heads. We haven't really understood that in the same way. There's a disorder called explosive violent disorder or intermittent impulsive disorder. Again, Dr. Asim Padella. Well, we know that it's a disorder and that might lead them to do certain sorts of harm, physical harm to others. But if you treat that, then they won't act out in that sort of way. Now, if you diagnose that at the courtroom, that's a problem. But if you diagnose that at you know, the bedside, then you can attend to that. So I think some of our neuroscience discoveries make a shift from punishment and retribution and maybe God cursing somebody over to therapy. That's going to be an interesting challenge for many religions, Islam too, which sometimes takes a more retributive punishment-type orientation to certain criminal activities. And it extends to suicide as well. While there's debate in various forms of Judaism and Christianity over the issue, just this summer the Church of England formally lifted its ban on full Christian burials for suicides. But in Islam, that debate has not been happening, says Imam Yahya Hendi. We have always said that suicide is illegal and Islamic practice. Traditionally, Muslim scholars uh, decided that those who commit suicide shall not and will not receive burial rights and will not be buried in a Muslim cemetery and have refrained from preying on someone who has committed suicide. In the 21st century, we understand now that committing suicide is not always because someone is tired of life and does not like God or as it was understood historically. People may commit suicide because of the impact of a specific medication on them, because of a mental health issue. In light of advances in mental health, Hendy says Muslim scholars also must reevaluate their perspectives. And I have myself been confronted with issues like this, where someone committed suicide and I was told that the imam in his community refused to offer the funeral prayers on him. And if I would do that, I said, of course I would. 
as a clergy, my role is to pray for anyone and everyone to be there for any and every human being and not to judge. And therefore, I do this because I reconstructed my understanding of Islam and what Islam wants of me in light of these new scientific research on the issue of mental health and the impact of it on suicide. Even imams can find themselves making decisions based less on religious texts and more on just what feels right. In the Muslim community, we have diverse opinions in terms of how to deal with specific issues or mental health or abortion or surgery and medication and the approach to it. And I do struggle on a daily basis with those questions because in my community there are diverse opinions, but I'm also up to date with what's going on in the field. And sometimes I don't have answers, sometimes I do have answers. And sometimes I have to be humble enough to say, I do not know. I just do not know the answer. Dr. Asim Padella is helping people find those answers. Aside from his research and his clinical work, he's trying to bridge medical and religious divides. I direct the Initiative on Islam and Medicine, and part of the impetus for that was because there are a lack of resources for patients and providers at the ground level. One, they don't have the training or sensibilities around their own faith necessarily or in an intellectual, rigorous, academic way. Two, there aren't easy-to-access resources. One might find, if you go online, like for any other issue, uh, you say, well, what have scholars said on XYZ? You'll find a diversity of opinions. Or if you go to your local mosque, you ask your local imam or a sheikh, they might have one view or another view. So I think plurality is good, but when you're thinking about an academic field, sometimes you need to adjudicate the boundaries and the means of discourse. So Islamic bioethics is more like a discourse than just an academic field. As technology continues to unlock medical possibilities, the debate over ethical boundaries has only grown more complex which means there's an even greater need for the work of Islamic bioethicists to offer guidance to the world's roughly 2 billion Muslims. Unlike Judaism and Christianity, which have been involved in this debate for decades, Islam is only now beginning to address it. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshi Shmulevitz with additional production help from Flan Williams. Nolan Schneider provided our theme music and assisted with sound design. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra at KCRW. Special thanks to Kim Fox in Cairo and Michael Sullivan in Bangkok for their help this month. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the Public Radio International app, or by visiting our website, pri.org, where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by the Henry Luce Foundation, Public Radio International stations, and listeners like you. PRI. Public Radio International.